Today's reading is Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, about two hours that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We've been teaching through the book of Acts, and... We're here in Ephesus now. And the time that the Apostle Paul spent in Ephesus is nearly as long as the time Jesus did public ministry in the Gospels. Which is to say, nearly three years, which is to say, quite a long time. And we're only given a glimpse of that ministry there in Ephesus, in the book of Acts. But this morning's passage is both iconic and we could say epic. Um, Just as hunters sit around campfires and tell stories about the one that got away, the big one, or maybe the big one that they got, I I can only imagine that those who witnessed this riot in Ephesus would have told stories about it for years and years to come. And because Luke has recorded it here for us in Acts, preachers have been talking about it for 2,000 years, and it's been strengthening and encouraging Christians. So as we study it together, would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, there are many things in our lives that feel great, that that feel weighty and important. Sometimes the things we feel as weighty and important, as great, we feel as too weighty and too important and too great. And feel you as too small. Lord, I pray as we study this passage, as we see the way that you work and your power and your strength and your might, Lord, I pray that you would enlarge our faith and trust and our vision, so to speak, of who you are, that we would see a glimpse and leave changed, encouraged, and strengthened with our greatnesses in our life rightly ordered. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, next week is the Super Bowl. Probably many of you already knew that. Um, I'm from Missouri, and so there's a little bit of excitement that a Kansas City team is in the, the game. Um, I would be a poser <laughs> if I was telling you I watched every game or even uh, hardly any games. But I do know this Super Bowl will be the most watched football game of the year, the, probably the most watched sporting event of the entire year, of every year. But that's next week. What if we backed up? What if we were to back up to last summer and something happened that threatened the very existence of the economic powerhouse that is professional football or the Super Bowl? What if something happened? What if really several things happened that tarnished the reputation of football? And perhaps some very public case of abuse was made known. Or perhaps issues that have been talked about over the last few years about concussions in football and the long-term effects just became just emblazoned in the news cycle because some study or other showed that, okay, the dangers of football are actually far greater than we even knew or understood. And then what if there was also a major scandal of performance-enhancing drugs? So several hundred players are suspended at the beginning of the season. What if several high-profile gambling cases were reported, including several franchise, what we call franchise players. So, so uh, not the key player on the team that season, but the, 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 the key player that the team is going to build their franchise around. What if several franchise players were implicated in a scandal to throw the outcome of games away for gambling bets? What if all that did happen, like it didn't happen, but if all that did happen on top of the pandemic, corporate sponsors would drop like dominoes, there'd be no million dollar Doritos commercials, probably not even be Budweiser commercials, television spots would fall away, streaming apps would no longer be carrying the games, like parents would be looking at their kids in Little League and wondering if they should be playing another sport, college football stadiums that were ordinarily packed with people 
would not be filled. There, there wouldn't be selling their merchandise. And then all of the other college sports, like the one I played, which was not a money-making sport, would be, who draw their revenue from, really, like their, our existence is dependent upon the money-making sports, basketball and football making money so that all the other sports can still exist. Their futures would be rocky. If all of that happened, you could imagine Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, gathering all of the owners and all of the teams together, all of the vendors, the makers of equipment and clothing, the corporate sponsors, Nike, Under Armour, Gatorade, Powerade, all the television executives, all the broadcasters and so on, and getting them together in a room for a conversation. Likely you can imagine the fear and the anxiety in that room. Likely you can imagine a situation so charged that one spark could just set the whole thing ablaze. And if you can imagine that type of scenario, and all the economics and all the livelihoods and all the fear, then you can sort of begin to imagine what was happening in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. There's a good and right place for the love of our work, for the love of business, for the love of, not love of money, but for the having of and making of and spending of and saving and giving of money. There's a good and right place for that. The Bible says the stuff of life, food, clothing, shelter, hobbies, pleasure, work, business, providing for one's family. The stuff of life matters to God. Like the Bible says that. So it should matter to us. But there is a disproportionate love of work and money and business or anything. When we love something as an ultimate thing in our life, as a God, so to speak, When someone, and when that someone or something is not God himself, the Bible would call that idolatry. We spent the whole fall talking about that, but it shows up here again this morning in Acts chapter 19 in prominent ways. And one way, not the only way, but one way we know our idolatry is being pricked. In fact, one way we might learn, in fact, what is our functional Day-to-day trust, our hope, our joy, our Savior, so to speak. One way we know that is when our idolatry is pricked and we respond violently and disproportionately. We'll see all of that here in this passage. So let's go back through it. And then at the end, I'll, I'll try and highlight what I think is the main theme that God would want us to see in this passage. passage begins in verse 21. So you have a Bible, go ahead and be, be looking at it. I'm going to be referencing it many times. Acts chapter 19 verse 21 reads this way. Now after these events, so the events at the beginning of chapter 19 and, and really the end of 18, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, sort of the broader Roman area there, and Acacia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, meaning Jerusalem, I will also see Rome. Now, this verse is the outline for the rest of the book of Acts. So that's where we're heading over the next few months. He's going to go from Macedonia to Jerusalem to Rome. We read that he resolved in the spirit to do that. 
I chuckle a little when I read that, though, even though it's not really all that funny. I'll explain. Uh, we, we don't immediately get the geography in our minds, at least most of us, um, what's going on there. Paul's in Macedonia, the area we're calling it, um, Ephesus, and he's going to go over to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go back to Rome. It'd be, sort of be like saying, if we're here on the East Coast and we're going to go to L.A., and then we're going to go to London, which is to say, we're going to start somewhere, go one direction, and then go way past where we started to somewhere way further. But that's not necessarily the funny part to me. The funny part uh, is that Paul does do this. Like, the book of Acts ends in Rome, chapter 28. He's there in Rome. But here in chapter 19, even though he's resolved in the spirit, in other words, God is leading him to feel like, okay, this is what you have for me, the Lord. I'm, I'm going to go to Rome and take the gospel there. Paul has no idea how he's going to get there. I mean, he has ideas about how he thinks he's going to get there. He has no idea how God is actually going to do that. He's going to get to Rome, but he's going to get there through death threats, prison beatings, and a shipwreck, a shipwreck that culminates um, with him in house arrest in Rome. Oh, he'll get there, and the gospel will get there without hindrance, but not how he probably intended. That's the rest of the book, we'll, a few months to cover that. But here, the rest of the passage, this, this trip out of Macedonia nearly unravels uh, Already in Acts chapter 19, everything almost falls apart. Verse 23, we read, as Janice read it so well a moment ago, that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is shorthand for Christianity. The way of the cross, the way of finding forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Gospels, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and no one comes to the Father except through me. So in the book of Acts, in the early church, the way, the way of the cross, the way of forgiveness through, to God, through forgiveness, through Christ, became shorthand. And here there's a, a disturbance about the way, about Christianity. No little disturbance, Luke writes. And, and Luke puts it mildly, and there's sort of a, a play on words here. Um, Demetrius, who we're going to meet in just a moment, verse 24, describes his loss of business as no little business. That's kind of ironic. It's, it's meant to be ironic. No little business in Ephesus, just like the Super Bowl is no little business. Listen to how Luke introduces to us Demetrius, this ringleader here in Ephesus and his speech. I'm going to read verses 24 through, um, flip over to Acts myself, um, 24 through 27. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, so not just his trade, but the other trades, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, 
She whom all Asia and the world worships. In last week's passage, Paul preaches and teaches about Jesus and and does miracles. And we read that many former pagans and instructors of witchcraft actually became Christians. And they had this huge bonfire where they burned all of their religious spell books and demonic paraphernalia. They just say, okay, this is no longer ours. Jesus has changed us. Just, just, let's just build a big fire. Like We're not even going to sell it. We don't want anyone else to have it. Just put it in the fire. Just light it up, and, and it burns. And, and, and the note that's added by Luke is that this total amount of money, had everything been sold, would have been worth, he says, 50,000 silver coins, or in today's money, I said last week, something like $6 million dollars. That dip in customers got Demetrius' attention. I want to move away from the imagery of football for a minute instead and craft Ephesus in terms of Las Vegas. What would happen if in Vegas so many people converted to Christianity that the Luxor and the Bellagio and Caesar's Palace started going out of business? I've, I've walked up and down the strip there on Las Vegas where all the, all the casinos, all the hotels, all the shops, all the wealth, all the indulgence. Is there Maybe some of you have done that as well. What if right there along this Las Vegas strip, a, a bunch of new and zealous Christians, they gathered together and, and they just put into this fire all, all their pornography, all their gambling paraphernalia, like all the... All, the, all these chips, they're like, we don't even want to sell them back to the casino. Let's just put them in there and light them up. Do you think that would get the attention of certain people? Like, Vegas, like, there is this like, okay, there's food, the flights are cheap, there's, you know, drinks and friends, and, and the weather's nice. There's this lightness to it. There's also a darker side, and I don't think it's just our perception from the movies. I think it's probably there, where something like this is going to get some attention of some bad dudes. Let's talk about Artemis for a minute. Paris has the Eiffel Tower, New York, the Statue of Liberty, St. Louis, the Arch, Seattle, the Space Needle. Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis. Her temple was just outside the city. It was huge. It was one of, considered one of what we call the seven wonders of the ancient world. When I say huge, I mean huge. I think we have a picture I want to put on the screen. Of So this isn't the temple today. Um, and this isn't in Ephesus. It's nearby in Turkey, another city. It's, it's a remake of the temple, smaller than it actually was. But the original was bigger than a football field. Not quite as big as the track that surrounds a football field, but like you picture a football field with a track, like it's, it's bigger than the footprint of the football field, not quite as big as the track. So it's huge. And it's 60 feet tall, which is basically twice as tall as our sanctuary. It had 127 marble columns around the exterior. So when I say huge, it was huge. And speaking of huge, the response to Demetrius' speech results in a crowd gathering in a theater, we're told. It's an outdoor amphitheater in Ephesus. Now, Reservoir Park 
in Harrisburg. So if you go down Walnut Street, there's an amphitheater there. That is tiny. It's just below the Civil War Museum. Um, that's an amphitheater. It's tiny. This theater in Ephesus was huge. I have another picture of what this amphitheater looks like. 24,000 people fit there. So just for context, um, Giant Center uh, in, in Hershey holds less than half of what that holds. So it's, it's enormous. We read in verse 28, that when the crowd heard this, Demetrius' speech, they were enraged, reading, enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and Paul, like that one guy standing, or gal, I don't know, in that picture, like right at the center of the, the, uh, you know, the amphitheater, we read that Paul wanted to go out to him, and his friends are like, You're not going out there, Paul. I know you want to. You're not going, you, you might die someday for the Lord. It's not today. There's an interesting line that Luke adds about mobs and riots. I don't know if you caught it, verse 32. And, and I want to generally keep moving through the passage. But I, I want to slow down here just for a paragraph. Verse 32, we read this. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Like that, that verse... <laughs> has felt wild to me for years. And especially in light of this last year. This statement is a warning and a caution to readers. In the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, there are several mob scenes. And they're always dangerous. For example, when the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him. The momentum of a mob causes people to be more cruel and evil than they would be by themselves. There is a stream, a current, so to speak, within the mob. And it pulls people along. Whether mobs in the street, mobs online, mobs in the cafeteria, your high school, and Luke is telling readers to be careful. As Christians, we've got to be really careful when you see a mob jumping on the latest thing on Facebook. I mean, I think it could read, and everyone shared about it on Facebook, and some did not even know why they were sharing it. Like, could, could we not paraphrase it that way? Luke is telling us, God is telling us here to be wise as Christians. Not to be naive, but that's sort of an aside. Let's keep going. Then some in the crowd wanted, we read, a Jew named Alexander to go out and speak to them. So like, <laughs> says the, they sort of pushed this guy forward named Alexander. Poor guy. <laughs> um, and I think, reading between the lines, what's going on here is like, they're like, okay, Paul's Jewish. The crowd's really amped up about Paul. Uh, Paul's ethnically and nationally Jewish no longer religiously merely Jewish, the outworking of his Judaism had its fulfillment as it was always supposed to in the Messiah, now Christianity, the way. But they push this guy forward who is also Jewish, I think to say, hey, go tell them Paul's not one of us or fully one of us. Like, and the crowd though, they're like, 
we don't care, monotheistic, monotheistic, we don't like you. And what results when they try to push forward this monotheistic poor guy Alexander, the crowd begins to shout for two hours. Megale, hey, Artemis, Ephesion, Megale, hey, Ephesion. And they just go on and on. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Two hours. And that can feel kind of silly to us. Kind of obnoxious. You imagine singing Baby Shark for two hours? <laughs> Baby Shark, doo doo. Right. Um, maybe you don't have kids in your house as young as mine. And it could be easy for us to hear these details and think, so, they're so silly. But we ought not to think too low of them. Their reaction is strong because their idolatry was strong. Their reaction was disproportionate because their love of their lifestyle was disproportionate. We can scoff at these Ephesians, but, but how often have you responded disproportionately when one of your idols is poked? In fact, again, as I said at the start, I want to submit to you that if you could think back over the past month or past year about how you responded to certain events or criticisms or disappointments, they might be telling you something about your functional Savior. Like who on a day-to-day basis you're actually looking to for strength and hope and joy and encouragement and stability in your life. Yes, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your Savior. But practically, as that works itself out in your day-to-day life, all of us struggle to draw our strength and encouragement and hope and joy from Jesus. All of us struggle to do that well. Again, think about where your strongest reactions have come over the last few weeks or months or a year. And if you're brave, you can ask a trusted friend. Say, hey, Where do you see me responding? Like, here's a really (laughs) dangerous assignment for you. Go ask a trusted friend. Where do you see me responding disproportionately in my life? To say it another way, I'm encouraging you to be suspicious of your strong responses. Don't assume they're right and good. They might be. Don't assume they're as holy as you take them to be. Imagine, or I want you to be... To consider that at that moment you're most defensive. That moment you're most fearful. At the moment you yell and storm about your house for two hours. That you're right and you should get what you want. And everyone else is an idiot. And they don't understand what's going on. But you're the only one who really does. Perhaps something deeper is going on in your heart. You might not be yelling great as Artemis. But we yell when our gods get poked. Next in the story, the city clerk sends them all home. It's, it's really quite anticlimactic. I mean, it's, everything's ramped up. You don't expend, expect it to end with this level-headed clerk coming in and dismissing the crowd. It's one of the, actually, things that happens often, thankfulness for a good government. Like, you know, Rome at times is bad and wrong, and Paul does end up in jail. But many times over, there's a goodness to a good government, and 
It's another aside we don't necessarily have time for. But Demetrius spoke of the danger to Artemis' reputation and well-being in Ephesus and the city clerk. So uh, as I understand the details of this, he's not appointed from the outside by Rome, but he's grown up within the ranks of Ephesus. And so he has some street cred with the people and he stands up. And not only that, some authority. And he says, okay, the real danger isn't that, Demetrius. The real danger is Rome's going to come in and put the smack down. Because we're in danger of writings. And, 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 and if you want to complain, the courts are open. Go home. And they do. It's, it's really quite anticlimactic. I want to close with what I believe is the main point, the main takeaway, the encouragement for us this morning as Christians. We'll see it best, I think, if we reread a line from Demetrius' speech. So if you have a Bible, look with me at verses 25 and 26. These he gathered, so the tradesmen, the craftsmen, with the workmen from other and similar trades, and says to Demetrius, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Now, Asia there is is not the Asia as we call Asia, but the Asia as Rome called it, which was more of kind of Eastern Europe. But you know that in almost all of Asia, this Paul, and you can just feel like he's got a battery on his tongue. This Paul has persuaded and what? Turned away a great many people saying... That gods made with hands are not gods. Like, like that's what Dimitri kept. It's a takeaway, a summary. And if you were here a few weeks ago, I was preaching from Acts chapter 17. And Paul's preaching Jesus on what we call Mars Hill, Areopagus, to a crowd of philosophers. And Paul had a very similar line to the one that Demetrius alludes to here in Acts 19, back in Acts 17, which leads me to Paul's preaching a similar message. I want to go back and let, let me read Acts chapter 17. You don't have to flip there, but if you had a Bible, it was just two pages over probably, or one page. Acts 17, 24 and 25. This is from that sermon from Paul. It's kind of, we heard Demetrius allude to it. Here, here's Paul preaching it himself. Paul says, The God who made the world... And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. They're thinking of the Parthenon. Here, thinking of Artemis' temple. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's served, but he's not served as though he needed anything. Paul writes... Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If you have to make a God with your hands, Paul says, if you have to care for it, if you have to serve it, and it needs you to maintain its existence, then it's not a God, Paul says. It's not the real God. The real God doesn't need to be served but instead serves. For two hours they shout, Megale, hey, Artemis, Ephesion. For two hours. Great is Artemis of Ephesus, 
They had to defend their goddess's honor. Today, if you go to Ephesus, maybe some of you have done this. I've not done this, which is in Turkey. You'll see that the great temple of Artemis is in ruins. We have another picture of this. That's all that's left. Whatever greatness the temple had, it's long gone. And so it will be with all gods that are not the real God. This passage reminds us that the greatness of our God is not that he needs our service, but that he serves us, though we don't deserve it. Jesus said in the Gospels that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away for others. It was a ransom, meaning to die in our place on our behalf. At a former church many years ago, during kind of an especially trying six months of ministry, a, a church member came up to me uh, and he asked me if he could take me to breakfast because he had something he wanted to talk to me about. As a young, newish pastor, this man was particularly intimidating to me. He had been elite special forces in the military for 20 years. Type of thing where you jump out of airplanes wearing all black and land behind enemy lines sort of guy. And... I had no idea what complaint or frustration he had with me in the church, but I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be able to hear it. And, and just half a mile down the road from the church, there's an IHOP, and, and we meet, and takes our order, wait, waitress, and, and bring the food, and the pleasantries wind down. And he looks at me and he says, I, I wanted to come to breakfast with you. To see how you were doing. And I just. Evidently the look on my face said. I I don't believe you. And he reiterated. I'm I'm here to see how I can help you. How are you doing? And I just looked down. And I started to cry. In my life now, I have several people who do this sort of thing for me regularly. We were new to a new city and away from family and to a new pastorate. At the time, at the time, all I knew of pastoring was, was pouring myself out. Being poured out for the Lord. Serving others. And here he was, this wealthy, strong man who needed nothing from me. I I didn't almost know how to receive that kindness. This is who Jesus is in the Gospels. He came not to be served, but 
to serve. Yes, we get to serve him. I hope you know the joys of Christian service. And if you're not a Christian and you're just watching from the outside, you're figuring things out, you're trying to figure out how Jesus is, there is a sweetness to be enfolded, enfolded into his kingdom and the gospel where he loves you and saves you and changes you and gives you passions and joys that you never had before. You, you, you link arms with other brothers and sisters in the family of God and, and you do ministry together. You serve together. There's a beauty to that. But the beauty of that service is that he doesn't need it. The way Artemis needs to be served. The way our gods, lowercase g, need to be served. The greatness of our God. The greatness of the real God. The Lord of heaven and earth. The maker of heaven and earth. So he doesn't need to be served. But when we've seen Jesus, as we read Paul write in another letter, we've, we've seen God. Jesus is the invisible, or um, Jesus is the physical display of the invisible God. A God who came to serve. I hope all of your service, all of your pouring yourself out to the Lord is infused and surrounded by and undergirded by the service you receive in the gospel from Christ. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team back up? Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning, uh, this passage and this sermon and this gathering of your people would be like the pouring in of rocket fuel, gospel rocket fuel to our hearts and minds, that, that the troubles in our lives, that the problems in our lives, that the frustrations, that the hindrances, that the lack of joy that's manifest so often in our lives in service to Christ, that you would pour into us a vision of your greatness, a vision of your majesty, a vision of your greatness that will never be in ruins. Lord, I thank you that treasure stored up here on earth will be destroyed, but the treasure that's stored up in heaven will never be in ruins. We thank you for the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.